We are live. Good to see you today, my EOS podcast friends. Today, we're here with Miles Snyder from Aurora EOS, and we're going to talk about some of the most interesting things going on in EOS and uh, Aurora, obviously. So, Miles, go ahead and introduce yourself. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Um, I'm Miles Snyder. I'm the CEO of Aurora EOS. We are a mainnet block producer candidate. Um, one of the more recent entrants into the block producer game we launched in September. Um, and yeah, super excited to be here. Cool, man. Well, it's, it's great to have you. And uh, I think it's going to be a fun show today. What, what do you think is most interesting going on in EOS today, just for you? It's, it's such a, it's, it's a tough question to answer. Like I, we've been doing a, a weekly uh, newsletter that's like a roundup of, of everything happening in EOS. And like every week I feel like there's some like new issue or, or thing happening that, that is, that is fascinating to me. Um, I think like on a more macro level, um, the thing to me that's, that's probably the most interesting about EOS is that it's the, it's the first blockchain where we've seen people build like fully on chain profitable businesses. Um, and you know, thus far that's taken the form of like these, you know, DAP casinos, right. That are doing, um, like gambling games. Uh, I, I think that's just a very early proof of concept for, for what we're going to see. Um, and you know, EOS has an architecture that, that, uh, no other blockchain has that, that offers the ability to, to, um, sort of run these enterprise grade applications or decentralized applications. Um, and that's a combination of like throughput, um, you know, latency, uh, usability, whether it's like account names or like no transactions and, and, and things like that. And I think, um, also the, uh, the different options offered by the permission system are, are huge. All those together kind of create this this um, this operating system upon which, for the first time, we can see sort of enterprise level applications get built. And so um, there's there's all sorts of what, things that, that you can do with that. And I think we're going to see a lot of experimentation. We already are seeing a lot of experimentation, but certainly in the future things will get even crazier. Um, but the thing to me that's most interesting right now is um, something like EOSBet or BetDice where you have a, a business that, that exists on the blockchain and is actually generates revenue, is profitable, offers a, a service to its users. And I think one of the coolest things about it is that it then um, sort of programmatically takes those, those earnings and distributes them to the developer team, to shareholders. Um, some of it goes back into the pot for, um, to sort of increase the, the, the value of the, um, of the available funds for people to, to, to gamble on. And, you know, obviously all this is taking place in a very specific vertical, which is gambling. We kind of saw, we saw that take off with, with EOS bet and then a bunch of other companies uh, followed suit to, to, to try to capitalize on what they, what, what EOS bet proved to be a really interesting opportunity. Um, but I think that's just the beginning. And I, I think this idea of having these, uh, you know, decentralized autonomous corporations that are, um, whose rule set and governance structure and, um, and business structure is entirely uh, programmatically on chain is, is super interesting to me. Yeah, that's it. The DACs are really interesting. I'd love to get into those. Um, but let's, for as far as EOS bet and uh, EOS dice, the, that model has been working so well. And what's, what do you think? How do you think the, What's the downside or how's that kind of, I mean, right now, the only thing that can necessarily stop it is if users stop using it. Is that right? I mean, 
How does how does it how does how does that system break? I mean, it seems pretty solid. So I think there's a couple of things. Like one is that um, you know to to what extent these things are fully decentralized. You know to what extent their actual DApps is is debatable and de- depends on the, the projects. Because um, remember, there's a bunch of them. There's there's ESBet and there's BetDice, which are the two big ones. Uh, but but there's several others, and I should start by saying this is not investment advice. I'm not endorsing or saying that anyone should go out and buy these tokens or anything like that. Um, but the, um, you know, there's a few things that could go wrong. One is that there's certainly legal issues around any sort of token that, that does like a a revenue share. Um, you know, I'm not a lawyer, so I can't really, um, analyze that, but certainly I think in some jurisdictions, those would maybe be considered securities. And, um, if any, you know, government organization chose to, to sort of go after those projects, um, you know, they, they could get in touch with the development team and, and, you know, potentially shut down those operations and, and blah, 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 blah. You, you, could, you could see a, a future in which these um, projects can continue without that sort of core development team or other people could take up the mantle or whatever, whatever it may be. But, um, but I think some of them are still centralized in certain aspects of their um, operation. And I actually think that that is going to be a trend that we'll see a lot because, um, People talk about decentralization like it's a, a binary, and it's it's really not. It's it's much more of a spectrum. Um, or you could even say within any given application or network, there's there's parts of it that are centralized and parts of it that are decentralized. And I think with a lot of these uh, things that will get built on on blockchains like EOS, you may have um, a sort of company that's at the center of something, meaning that in, in that way it's kind of centralized but it's decentralized in the sense that these smart contracts that users are interacting with um, are on the blockchain and are sort of programmatic. So, so for example, say you've got um, a betting website that, you know, they own, they own the, the URL and the sort of uh, the portal where users go to play and they own that user experience and they've got a developer team that, that actually works to update all of that. Well, in those ways, it's kind of centralized, but, as a user, you go there and when you place a bet, you're, you're actually interacting with a smart contract. So you're not trusting that team to, to not steal your money because you can, you can actually see that on, on chain and you're, the smart contract is, is where you're sending your money. So I think that sort of hybrid model is, is what we're going to see a lot of where the parts that require um, that sort of counterparty trust will be put on chain, but maybe the business itself will still be owned by, by a centralized entity. And the extent to which um, they they go sort of fully decentralized or not is going to be is going to be dependent on the model. Yeah, that's that's the that's the approach. It seems like teams are taking is that we're not real sure how to decentralize the whole thing yet, but we can decentralize this part. We can do this part how we know, and uh, we'll figure. We'll take baby steps and figure that out as we go. Um, mm-hmm. And and that's like that's for me. That's the general thesis around uh, of EOS and gen is that um, you have one end of the spectrum that's like just full governed like uh, the US government, for example, or like what we have now, how we govern ourselves now. And then you have the other end of the spectrum that code is law, like Bitcoin. And then there's this place where EOS sits in the middle where we know that we can do some of these things better with governance, but we don't know how to do all of it with code is law. There's this spot in the middle where EOS sits that, um, that it's a give and take and it's, it's, a, it's a spectrum, like you say. And, and I, I like that spot because um, 
it enables us to move more quickly and figure things out as we go, as opposed to having to figure it all out on the front end and then hope it works and doesn't break. You know, I think, yeah, I think that, that sort of the position where EOS sits on that spectrum is both its greatest opportunity and its greatest challenge. Yeah. Uh, You know, code is law is a very simple approach, but it's also super predictable and super sort of socially scalable. Um, when you do something that's more along the lines of, um, you know, we want to enforce code, but understand that, that things go wrong and there needs to be a process for upgrading and all that, that gets a lot messier. Um, but of course it also offers you the opportunity to potentially avoid some of the, um, some of the problems that have, that have plagued other platforms. Um, I don't think that the EOS community has quite like figured that out yet. I think our governance processes are still pretty immature and still being defined. Um, and that's, in my opinion, the the biggest challenge for EOS right now. And we'll probably talk more about that when I talk about some of the stuff that Aurora is doing. Um, but I think that, um, you know, if, if done correctly, uh, it, it's a huge opportunity. Yeah. Do you have any ideas where you see this, um, where you think the next kind of inroads will be? Like we just talked about uh, EOS bet dice. They're partially decentralized, partially not. Where do you, where do you think after gambling, maybe some of this um, momentum flows? Um, it seems pretty clear to me that gaming is like the next vertical that's going to, that's going to take off. Um, so if you look at the most popular um, dApps or, or uh, haps, if you want to call them like hybrid apps mm-hmm. uh, on EOS, there's uh, there's, you know, like if you go to dapradar.com, there's like, I don't know, 50 like gambling sites, uh, 40 of which are just clones of, of 10 that are maybe doing actual innovation. Um, and then you've got, um, you've got a few games, but the biggest one is EOS Knights. So this is sort of a, another example of um, uh, a hybrid business model. So you've got EOS Knights. It's, it's built by a centralized company. I believe it's a Korean company. Um, and it's a game that exists on chain. And you can own digital objects uh, that, that, that are um, you know, tied to your EOS account. So you, you actually own them. Um, and you can sort of trade them within the game and buy and sell them. And... and what, uh, what that does, it, it actually, again, is a business model for EOS Knights, right? Like if you, I haven't played it too much, but my understanding is that if you want to go do EOS Knights and buy a sword, you have two options. You can, you know, go to the marketplace and buy a sword from another user that has it, or I think you can buy a sword from EOS Knights itself. Um, and so, like, in some ways what the DAP or what the, the game does is it gets users onboarded. They, um, they pay for certain things within the, the app, and then once they own them, they can sell them to other users if they want. But that initial purchase, that, that revenue goes to EOS Knights. And by building it on a blockchain, they one, they offer users more sort of ownership of their, of their digital items, um, but two, they kind of have this, um, this global, they, they get access to this global user base with, with much fewer barriers to entry than if you said, okay, we're going to build a game, but if you want to buy something in it, you have to, you know, go through PayPal or, or a credit card or something like that. You know, like anyone out there who holds EOS can go, you know, participate in the EOS Knights game. And so they, once again, have built a, a profitable game business on, on EOS. Um, they're really the major one right now, but like we saw that um, Mythical Games, which is a, a bunch of uh, ex-Activision um, executives, just raised, I think, $16 million to build blockchain games specifically focused on EOS. Um, and I've seen a number of other companies and individuals and organizations that are, that are working in that vertical. And that makes sense because um, we, we can kind of see some of the, 
the benefits of building, you know, a blockchain on a game and having, um, you know, self-sovereign ownership of digital assets and things like that. But up until this point, there's been very significant barriers to um, anyone seeing much success in that space because the other blockchain platforms that have come before EOS have generally had um, very low throughput, very high latency, and very either high or unpredictable fees. So that's one of the things we saw around CryptoKitties is it just like it couldn't, you know, the, the popularity exceeded what the, the underlying blockchain was capable of handling. Um, fees got really high, things got congested, et cetera, et cetera. Um, EOS uh, addresses or and or fixes a lot of those issues. And so it really is kind of the first blockchain platform where we're getting actual users to, to play and, and use a game um, makes sense. So I think that without a doubt, gaming is going to be the next thing that we see kind of take off. And, and that can take all sorts of forms. Um, to be honest, I, I didn't grow up like as a gamer. Um, I never like was a big like video gamer either on like, um, like consoles or, or on the computer. So it's not necessarily my area of expertise. Um, but I've done the, I've done my best to sort of do the research and, and listen to people who know what they're talking about. And, and that to me seems pretty clear. Yeah, I love thinking about the opportunities that the game the game vertical has. Uh, <clears throat> I got high fidelity coming on the show. Oh, so nice. probably, probably that'll probably pop out on Monday uh, if if things if everything happens right. But um, but yeah, high fidelity is doing the whole Second Life thing, which is I didn't play Second Life, but um, it's basically like a massive online multiplayer, but without really quests that people are like almost just living in this area and doing whatever they want as opposed to like some sort of linear uh, goal that they have. But, um, but the idea that they're going to put something like second life onto the EOS blockchain where you own all your stuff within the game uh, is just this, this huge gap of, I think people are going to look back one day and, and not believe that we used to play video games and not, own our items physically, you know, or not necessarily physically, but not have a sovereign ownership over our items, I think will be a big, like, uh, uh, people look back and laugh, like, why would you even want a sword in a video game if you didn't own it? Why would you buy it, you know? So, yeah, yeah. I mean, as it exists today, if you own a sword in like, um, you know, I don't know, World of Warcraft or something that, that exists within this siloed database that is World of Warcraft. And mm -hmm. I think people, People have like traded digital items um, and so like from World of Warcraft, but it requires them to like go meet up in person with someone and exchange it. I actually know a guy, I knew a guy in college who got robbed doing that. No way. <laughs> yeah, because that's what it was required. You had to like take it, uh, you know, like not off chain isn't the right word, but offline to, to go do the transaction because there was no marketplace that existed because World of Warcraft wanted to keep that um, siloed. But we, we know that those things, um, or like trading skins, there's been marketplaces for that. Mm -hmm. um, and so we know the demand exists for people to sort of take ownership of and then um, have marketplaces for their digital items. But, um, but we haven't had true like self-sovereign digital ownership until now. Um, and I think, you know, you know with, with, especially with EOS blockchain, um, that becomes possible in a, in a really interesting way. Um, and I think we'll see, you know, we'll see huge activity around that. And then the other reason that I think gaming stands a really good chance of becoming um, the the next major vertical is that, uh, so, you know, EOS is still pretty immature in, in a lot of ways. Um, it's, it's the, you know, the user onboarding process isn't perfect. Um, 
you have to be somewhat crypto native to, to be able to use it. Um, it still requires some degree of tech, technical expertise. Um, and I think there's a lot of progress that EOS has made and a lot of features that, that make it better poised to capture sort of mainstream non-crypto native users. Um, but as it stands right now, uh, it's, it's more likely that people who are already kind of technical will, will get involved. And generally speaking, gamers are a more technical audience than, um, than, than audiences for other verticals out there, like maybe, you know, like the decentralized finance vertical or the decentralized social media vertical or things like that. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, it's like the, it not only are they more technical, they're like the perfect target market. They're, they're the, the generation that's grown up kind of playing inter, internet games, playing video games, grown up with the internet, with phones. Um, they're, they're the ones who are ready to adopt crypto anyway. So, and, yeah. more technical. and I think they're more used to like the idea of making like purchases of digital items and like seeing the value there. Yeah. Yeah. Like took me forever before I was like actually shopping Amazon on my phone. Like it just, there was kind of this little gap and I was like, Oh, this is actually pretty easy. But you know, some people just, that was like, they were nine years old doing that, you know? So, um, yeah, totally. yeah. Yeah. So cool. Yeah. Gaming is gaming's going to be big. What do you think? Um, outside of gaming, do you have any, what would it be? I know that there's kind of a gap between the next, the next kind of interesting things, but maybe the financial markets or, or, or excuse me, um, like something like Warbly or where do you, where do you think the other? Uh, so I, I think there, there's two pieces of um, like infrastructure that all smart contract platforms or um, decentralized operating systems, uh, you know, decentralized application platforms need um, that fuel a lot of the other, um, use cases that, that could become really interesting. And that is um, decentralized exchange and stable coins. Okay. So we have seen a number of de decentralized exchanges uh, get built on EOS. Um, no, there, there hasn't been one in, in my opinion, and I haven't been paying super close attention, but there hasn't been one yet that's like sort of emerged as kind of the winner that's got like, you know, the most liquidity or best user experience or whatever. And my understanding is that most of these are, um, they're like centralized order books that are maintained on a server off chain. And all that happens on chain is the, um, the transfer of the assets, which is trustless. So they're, they're really non-custodial exchanges more than decentralized exchanges. Now those are super useful because um, it allows you to trade directly from your wallet. You don't have to take counterparty risk. It's generally a lot faster, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I think having like a fully on-chain DEX is something that we'll absolutely see on EOS because again, um, you have the transaction throughput to, to be able to do something like that. You know, as we know, Dan Larimer's first project was BitShares, which I was a BitShares user back in like 2014 because I thought the stable coins were really cool. And that was a, a fully on-chain decentralized exchange. So every, you know, bid, ask, sell, fill, all of that was actually logged on-chain. Um, it was super cool. And BitShares had like three second block times and probably, you know, equivalent or maybe a little bit lower throughput than, um, than EOS. And the decentralized exchange actually worked, you know, quite well. Um, so I think you could get an even better user experience with, with EOS. And the reason that that fuels a lot of other use cases is because any of these use cases, like the ones that we discussed, that involve um, like self-sovereign ownership of digital assets, well, you need a marketplace where you can trade those things. 
So um, you want a, a marketplace where you can go and, and trade some of these tokens, um, you know, potentially trade NFTs, which, which aren't like, those are non-fungible tokens. So that's a little bit of a different ball game, but, um, but certainly if there's, if there's tokens that are associated with dApps in any ways, um, you, you want the ability to, to trade those without having to leave the ecosystem of the decentralized operating system that is EOS. So that's one piece of infrastructure. The other piece of infrastructure I think is, is stable coins. Um, because when you, if you want to attract mainstream users, you want to allow them to uh, interact with these things using a unit of account that they're familiar with. Um, because using crypto for payments, I mean, you're, you're a crypto guy, I'm a crypto guy, we've all done it. It's not the best experience, right? Like, I don't know if you ever bought anything with Bitcoin like back in the day, but like you probably look back now and you're like, oh. I've got a great example. We were at the, uh, the scaling blockchain event right after the EOS hackathon. Yep. And uh, so, you know, it's a, it's an EOS event with like a pretty concentrated group of EOS gangsters. And uh, <laughs> uh, we were supposed to buy lunch with EOS and like barely anyone could do it. It's like, Oh, this is okay. This is, this is very telling right here. So yeah. Anyway. <laughs> go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's it's all it's like it's about the, the sort of like the price fluctuations. Um, the other thing is that like EOS has a really unique token model, and it's in my opinion one of the one of the most interesting token models because of what it does for transaction fees. But what EOS really is is um, it's a way of allocating resources on the back end of this this database. And so I think for most users, they will either not want to. They won't, they won't really have to know about EOS. I think that'll get allocated to them by the DAP. Um, but it really should be for like bandwidth allocation. Whereas if you want to be spending, you, you should be doing that with a stable coin because one, it's, it's stable. So you're not worried about price fluctuations. Two, it's a unit of account that you're familiar with because most of them are pegged to the dollar. So you can kind of just think of it as a digital, you know, blockchain native version of the dollar. And, um, Three, it allows you to say, you know what, like I'm going to keep all of my EOS staked so I can get maximum bandwidth capacity right now. Um, you don't have to do this calculation where, where you're like, all right, I guess I'll stake 80% and then keep the other 20% liquid so I can pay, pay for things with it. And, you know, if I, if I decide, if I spend all my liquid EOS and decide I want to pay for more things, I got to unstake and that takes three days and blah, blah, blah. Um, I think it's a better user experience if you have, if you have that. And then finally, there, there's certain use cases where paying for things um, or using applications where you're denominating in, in crypto is just not that useful. Um, so if you're doing like an insurance contract or a lending contract, or you're, you're betting on a prediction market, you, um, you may be taking risk in, in other ways and you don't want to take on additional price risk with that. Um, so say that you're betting on the, the outcome of a, of a sports game, um, that takes place in, in a week. Um, you know, you want to bet a certain amount on that. And maybe you win the bet, but the price of EOS has gone down in this week. So, so you end up coming out with, with less money than, than you actually put in. Um, those things are avoided by, by using stable coins. So I think when, when we have both of those key pieces of infrastructure, it opens up the possibility for a lot of other interesting use cases to come forward. Yeah, that that's a those are some huge points there. Um, and and the dexes you you said that there hasn't been one that's kind of maybe doesn't have a ton of liquidity because there's maybe we need some network effect on an EOS yep. dex basically. Um, it sounds like block one will probably come out with some sort of dex at some point. It would be a natural transition for that. That would be a real easy one to gain network effect on. Block one puts one out and people okay, that's where we should be. And then so that might be a quick. I think it's that might it's be a quick not, one. 
Yeah, it's not just that like Block One would put it out and they're, they're such a respected name within the ecosystem, but also like, you know, Dan built BitShares, which was the, the first real like fully on-chain DEX. He's got a lot of experience there. He's got a lot of ideas there that he's talked about for a long time. Um, I think on GitHub, you can find like eosio.exchange from some of the Block One code. So like we know they're working on it. Um, and I think, uh, yeah, I, I agree with you. I think that when that comes out, that's going to be sort of a, landmark moment yeah that'll be cool <clears throat> that's kind of something i'm excited for this year is those hopefully a few landmark moments with a with a dex with like a maybe like a steam at 2.0 especially the wallet should be fairly soon um yep. i think there'll be these polished drops onto the uh onto the eos io blockchain that'll be really cool yeah um, i mean wallets actually I, I didn't even mention that but like talk about a core piece of infrastructure like yeah. having easy to use easy to onboard easy to navigate uh tools for for key management is really what they are right like wallets uh wallet is a sort of an interesting term but what what a true wallet is is it's a place to securely store your keys and sign transactions on your behalf so that's what scatter is people don't necessarily think of scatter as a wallet but i think of scatter as like a little vault that sits in your computer that holds those keys that allows you to interact with any eos dap on on the web um using that and then you've got some of these mobile wallets like meet.one and token pocket and eos links that are um those are more like a combination of key management and um dap explorer right so you can actually from within that from within the meet.one wallet, you can go, you know, play one of these gambling games, win some tokens, and then go sell those tokens on an exchange. Um, but the heart of the service that they're providing is is the the key management and the secure the secure storage of those keys and the ability to securely sign transactions with those keys. And so what block one is working on with the Apple Secure Enclave is is super exciting from from that perspective. Yeah, I, I love the block explorer aspect of, of the wallets that I've used. Um, just that makes it so easy to transition into using one of the applications because that can be kind of a headache. Um, I, th I think that for, for the UI, UX angle, I think that that's, that's big. And I hope that the block one wallet has that. Um, you, what was the last thing you just mentioned there? I should... Uh, well, the secure enclave? Yeah, the secure enclave. Can you talk... Oh, yeah, in the, in the Apple... Um, in the in the interface with Apple, can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, um, I'm not necessarily like an expert on secure enclave or, or hardware security or anything like that. But but my understanding is that um, you know within every iPhone there is a secure enclave that essentially works like a, like a ledger or a treasure hardware wallet, where it's a um, very secure piece of hardware that actually generates a key pair, keeps the private key within that secure piece of hardware so that it's not accessible um, you know by any sort of malicious uh, program or anything like that and and it signs the transactions for you so if you onboard into uh, EOS wallet right now what it usually does um, if it if it you usually have two options you can either import an account in which case you have to take an existing private key and import that into the wallet or maybe it onboards you it creates an account for you like something like EOS links creates an account for you um, and they give you they spit they they create a key pair for you. So it gives you a private key and it's like this big message is like copy this, keep a secure backup, make sure you don't lose this. If you lose this, you lose your account, all that stuff. And so, you know, users are kind of used to like username and password. Um, and they're especially used to the idea that like a password is not that important because if you lose it, you can do password recovery. Um, private keys are not like that. 
they're much more uh, they're they're much more sensitive, and and you have to sort of guard them much more securely. So I think the idea that we're going to onboard like mass onboard users by creating key pairs for them and saying, hey, here's your private key, don't lose it, is is not realistic. Whereas if you do this through the secure enclave, what you do is that the enclave actually creates the key pair for you and the private key is stored in the enclave. So you don't have to say to the user, hey, here's a copy of your private key, make sure you, you back it up. The, the, you, can, you can kind of say to the user, hey, here's an account, you know, we created this account for you. Um, you, you could show them their account name, depending on the technical level of the user, you could show them their, their public key, but they don't really have to worry about the private key. They can more think about it as like, hey, we created an account for you and your password is your fingerprint because it, it happens through touch ID or your password is your face because it happens through, through face ID. And so that abstracts key management away from users in a really, really important way. So I think that's the number one most important thing. But the number two thing is that it just makes the user experience a lot better. Um, so we're talking about, you know, sending a, uh, we're talking about being able to store large amounts of, of EOS in a mobile wallet in a way that is, um, comparable security wise to holding them in a ledger and the ability to interact with the blockchain, um, pretty seamlessly using either touch ID or face ID. So if anyone here is, if anyone who's listening has used like EOS links wallet, um, they allow you to sign transactions with, with Touch ID. And every time I do it, it feels kind of like a taste of the future because it's just so easy. Um, now, they're not actually using the secure enclave. They're using um, what's called, um, maybe it's called Chain ID or something. I, I can't remember, but they're, they're sort of encrypting the private key using, using Touch ID. The block one solution takes it a, a step further. And so you can kind of imagine a, a future in which you'll be able to, you know, store pretty mar large amounts of EOS on your mobile wallet, um, you know, vote instantly just using the, the press of a button or, or showing your face to it, um, you know, interacting with all these dApps, et cetera, et cetera. And a lot of the um, scary, complex blockchain stuff is, is abstracted away from the user. Yeah, wow. <clears throat> um, I, I, the concept of taking um, blockchain tech or the EOSIO tech and weaving it in with this well-established tech that we already have is, is, is a bigger picture kind of next level for me also because it's been almost siloed like the blockchain wants to build its own new internet and make its own new technology, but we don't necessarily have to do everything. There's stuff out there like the secure enclave that as we integrate, um, you know, it can make leaps and bounds. So that, that, that's a great one. Um, yeah, absolutely. I feel like if we, you know, there's room for, um, I think integration with existing systems, there's room for, uh, there's room for trust in, in the world. There's room for reputation and all these things. I think some of the, some, some of the crypto ecosystem has gone too far in the direction of like, you know, don't trust, verify, code is law, all this stuff. I think for certain use cases that, that makes sense. But I think for other use cases, especially when we talk about, you know, onboarding, you know, mass onboarding users, we, we, need, to, uh, we need to leverage a lot of the, the tools we already have at our disposal. Yeah, I, I, I of, of the same opinion that there is room for trust in the world. As, as humans, we've figured out how to govern ourselves for thousands of years, and we're not horrible at it. It's not completely broken. There's, there is 
interactions we have that are optimized just on a human level. We can, that's another part that can weave in just fine if we figure out how to do it. So um, yeah, there's the tech that's already there. There's how humans already interact. And then there's the blockchain. And as we weave them together, that's, that's the, that's the goal here is, is that middle ground. Um, so yeah, absolutely. The, uh, so if you're holding this secure enclave, you've got your, say you have, say you're a, like a, a whale or an orca, you got a bunch of EOS like on your phone and it just takes a thumbprint to unlock. Uh, is that going to be like, what are the security measures? Is it going to be like walking around with a hundred grand in your pocket or a million dollars in your pocket or, you know, or no. So, so actually that, that's a really good point. Um, and I think this gets to my, one of my favorite features of the EOS IO software that makes it different from anything else out there is this permission system. So EOS offers the ability to um, customize your account in a way that is um, radically different from anything else that's ever been offered. So if, if, a, if you're a user on Ethereum, you basically have a key pair that, that defines your account. So you, you have a public key and a private key. Your private key is your password and your public key is your email address. Um, you know, if, if, you want, if I want to have you send me some ETH, I, uh, I give you my public key and you send it there and I can access those funds using my private key. And that's kind of uh, that's kind of it at a basic level. So you have to keep your private keys super super secure, whether that's in a hardware wallet or you know completely offline. Depending on what you want to do on the blockchain, you you may have to create multiple accounts. Say you know my uh, savings account that it is totally offline. I keep that key in a in a lockbox somewhere. You know like engraved into a crypto steel. Um, and then I have another account that I, that I use with my ledger that I can use for everyday payments or stuff like that. EOS offers the ability to completely customize this in a way that kind of gives you the best of both worlds. So instead of just having a single key pair that defines an account, EOS has a human readable account name, right? So, um, you know, you could have, uh, it will, they, they have to be 12 characters, but say they could be whatever you could have happy money, man is your account, right? I've got a, I've got Mr. Happy money, Mr. Happy money. Perfect. All right. <laughs> so, so you've got Mr. Happy money, which is this human readable account name. And then within that account name, um, are a number of key pairs. So by default, you have an owner key and an active key. So the owner key controls root access to the account, meaning that if you wanted to transfer ownership of that account or drain all the funds or whatever it may be, it can do everything. That's like the master, the master key. Um, and then the active key can do everything except change the owner key. So it's, it's it, the, the, the active key has, has full permissions except that it doesn't actually own the account. Now, um, what you can do with EOS is you can actually create additional key pairs that are for specific actions. So you could create a new key pair that also exists under the Mr. Happy Money account that is only for voting. And the only thing that that key can do is vote. So say that you wanted to, um, you know, say that you've got a thousand EOS in that account and you want to vote with that every week. Well, you can create a, a voting key um, and import that voting key into your desktop wallet. And then, you know, every week you log on and you vote. And worst case scenario, if that key gets compromised or stolen or whatever, someone can, can change your vote. But you, because you control the higher, the higher permissions with the owner and active key, can go and change that, that key pair to a new key pair. So if I stole your voter key, you can actually change that out. And now that voter key is, is no longer controls voting on your account. 
even if you want to get um, even crazier with the permissions, you can go and do, you can say, okay, my owner key is going to be actually a multi-sig of a number of other keys. So you could say, um, you know, we're going to do, we're going to have, uh, if I want to change the ownership of the account, I need a two of three multi-sig that consists of, of these, other, these other key pairs. Um, you can do time delays. So you can say, um, it's a two of three multi-sig, um, you know, unless uh, 30 days passes and then it becomes a one of three. Um, and you can do all sorts of these customizations and permissions and you can say, you know, here's a specific key just for posting to this on-chain forum or, or whatever it may be. And so the, the reason that this is really important for EOS is that uh, EOS is, is, a, is a blockchain that's meant to be interacted with, right? It's not just like a store of value coin. Like uh, I, I say just because, you know, I, I actually, I'm, I'm a big fan of Bitcoin and I, I think it's, it's really interesting for a lot of reasons, but it's primarily a store of value, right? So like my Bitcoin, I just keep that completely offline, right? Like that key is just stored somewhere else. And if I want to send money to my Bitcoin address, I've got the, the public key, but, but that just stays offline. And I'm happy to hold that for years offline. With EOS, like you want to be voting on chain, you want to be interacting with dApps, you want to be, you know, potentially lending out your tokens, all of these things. And so, historically, with um, with the structures of of public blockchains, you have to make this decision decision between like offline cold storage or hot storage, where I interact with the internet. EOS gives you the best of both worlds, so you could you could actually keep your owner key completely offline, um, even keep your active key offline, but create a key pair that say say allows you to vote allows you to transfer um, you know, X amount of EOS per day, allows you to interact with these dApps, and that can be kept in your mobile wallet or your hot wallet or whatever it may be, without requiring you to sort of split those funds among different accounts. So my guess is that for advanced users, what you're gonna do is you're gonna have, um, you know, maybe you have all of your EOS staked. Um, say, that you, say that you own you know, 20,000 EOS, right? You have all of those EOS staked, and the owner key is a two of three multi-sig that's kept completely offline. Well, maybe you create an active key with um, permissions for specific things that you want to do, and you keep that on your phone. And you set up um, you set up restrictions on the amount that can be transferred by that key, um, the uh, sort of what exactly it can do, and time delays and things like that. And so you get access to your twenty thousand EOS worth of staked resources. But even if someone stole that key, they can't drain your account. They can't change the ownership of your account. Um, they can only they they can only sort of do the limited set of things that you have specified for that key pair, um, and so I think you know ultimately what this allows you to do is it it, it gives you a a level of customization that is super useful to advanced users, super useful to enterprises, um, and I think for a lot of users it's going to be. Um, handled by the wallet provider sort of on the back end and will allow the wallet provider to create a, a setup that's super secure and usable and all of that. Um, and that can actually be abstracted away from the end user. But if you are an advanced user that wants to take advantage of these, these features, they're there for you. And if you're an enterprise that's building on EOS, there's all sorts of options available to you. So I think in the future, um, yeah, I think people will, will use things like the Block One mobile wallet, but I think the advanced users will just have permissions set up in such a way that allows them to sort of take full advantage of their account um, with resources and voting, but do so in a super, super secure and safe way. Yeah. And that, that's kind of the logical step. It's the same way, like with, with banking and things like that, the, the whales are much more, uh, you know, they got to go much more in depth with how to 
protect and secure their money and where it is and how it moves around. And, and same thing with, with EOS, there's probably whales out there or um, companies that are going to put a lot of time into how they utilize our private keys. And then there's going to be just people walking around every day with a few EOS and they're, that they're using and it's not such a big, you know, it's not such a big deal. So yeah, there's a really cool company called Casa Hodel. Have you heard of them? No, that's cool. Uh, Casa, Casa Hodel that they, they do, um, they provide a service for sort of um, advanced high value Bitcoin users where they, they create like a, a multi-sig setup um, that's really secure and, and offer users the ability to, to protect their funds in a way that is both very secure against both like sort of like tech threats and like social threats, um, but also self-sovereign. It's one of the like coolest companies in my opinion in the Bitcoin space. Um, and EOS has sort of, but, but it requires them to, to create this setup involving hardware wallets and sort of, um, you know, uh, th third parties that, that could potentially help you in, in certain cases and all that. Whereas EOS allows you to kind of build those in on chain rather than having to go through these off chain setups to do so. Cool. Um, a little bit earlier, you'd mentioned uh, NFTs, and when we were talking about DEXs, has you, have you seen anything out there, any sort of NFT exchanges or any places like that? I don't know there's not that many non-fungible tokens out there right now, but... Yeah, so, um, like, one of the things that Ethereum has done really well is um, having these token standards. So, there's the ERC-20 token standard, which is like almost any token you, you get on, on Ethereum is an ERC-20. And then there's ERC-721, I think it is. That's the non-fungible token standard. Um, and these are really useful because they, they create a standard across the ecosystem that makes it easier for exchanges to integrate with them. You know, new projects that want to spin up have these sort of standards that they can go to. Um, EOS has a, a token standard, but not an NFT standard as far as I understand. Um, so hopefully someone is building that. I know there's some projects that have done NFTs, but I think they've kind of done custom tokens for that. Having a standard will be really useful and would allow more like exchanges to emerge. I haven't seen any NFT specific exchanges yet, but I believe um, within the EOS Knights app, you can sell these digital items. So to some extent, that's sort of an, an NFT exchange. And then also like Monster EOS, I think you can buy and sell those um, from, from within their site. But as far as like an... NFT decks that pulls from all these different NFT projects. We haven't seen that yet. And it'll be interesting to see if the like block one decks, for example, offers support for NFTs because it's a little bit of a different game, right? Like you're not just uh, like if you're selling EOS for IQ tokens, right? Like every IQ token is, is fungible. It's, it's equal. It's the same, same with EOS tokens. Yeah. You can do those transactions. You can build that, build that order book and do those transactions easily. If I'm, selling uh some eos for uh crypto kitty well if i'm buying you know happy money man crypto kitty versus you know like nebula crypto kitty then it's it's going to be a different value so it's a it's a slightly different structure for the exchange but um i would guess that the, the block one guys have that taken care of yeah hopefully for sure huh? uh and and again it's probably something that or possibly something that the gaming industry will drive forward like we have the steam marketplace in the in the centralized gaming industry where they can trade uh skins and weapons and things and oh yeah i always get confused when people talk about steam because i always think of the steam blockchain but yeah it, it's a s-t-e-a-m is a it's a gaming marketplace yep yep it's a gaming marketplace so it's like um 
basically you were talking about skins and weapons and things like that. There is a centralized gaming marketplace where you can trade all these items and buy and sell them with credit cards and real money and things like that. Um, but the problem is, is that the developers still have control over the items. The developers still have control over whether those items continue to exist or not. Uh, and people, when there's updates, people will lose their purchased items and things like that. So, um, totally. Yeah, so the, the other thing is that, um, like, and, and you have to think about why that's the case, right? Like if you're the developer of World of Warcraft, you don't want people to be able to sort of take those items outside of the, the game ecosystem that you control because it affects your ability to extract value from that ecosystem. Now, if you imagine, say that, um, you know, people, you know, there's thousands of users using EOS Knights every day. They own all these digital items. And all of a sudden, the developers behind EOS Knights like pull some BS and, and say, you know, we're going we're gonna to do something in the game that people like hate. Well, if you are a, a savvy game developer, you may see an opportunity there to say, hey, EOS Knights community, we're building a, you know, an, an alternative to EOS Knights with a, with a new set of rules that, uh, that sort of better reflect what the community wants. And you can bring all of your items over here and we'll honor them in the, you know, the same way that if you had a, you know, a level 12 you know, wizard wand in, in EOS Knights, so you're gonna have a level 12 wizard wand in this new game as well. And it um, like gives users a lot of control to, to be able to sort of port over to, to other uh, places that, that, that could um, sort of uh, honor those items. Um, and then the other thing is it gives, uh, it gives you sort of a provenance for your, for your items in an interesting way. So like we know that in the um, gaming space, there's like, you know, you're now seeing like uh, gaming celebrities, right? Like, yeah. like the guy is like has, you know, millions of subscribers on YouTube and he just plays Fortnite. Um, and so if you had a, a gun that was owned by Ninja in Fortnite, um, you know, oh, you can actually, wow. that would command a lot of value and you can actually trace that provenance through the blockchain to say like, absolutely, this is certified the, you know, the, the gun that, ninja used to to kill the last standing you know whatever in the greatest game that was ever played or whatever and like i think that 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 part of things is going to become um a really interesting um factor that, that drives valuations as well oh it's wild man i hadn't thought of that yet i've uh that's like you know getting assigned to baseball from barry bonds or sorry you know getting a home run ball or you know something like that how interesting oh yeah. my god and i think to people who are like over a certain age it probably sounds crazy that we're talking yeah. about this yeah um but i think for like a younger generation that's more used to buying these digital items and, and like i think that's to them there's there's going to be no real observable difference between buying a, a base baseball bat that, that Barry Bonds used and, and buying a, a digital, you know, weapon that, that Ninja used. Well, I mean, I can't, I had some questions about this as well. So I, I started digging in like, what is going on? Uh, for one thing, this stunning fact is that uh, the world gaming championships or something is multiple times more watched than the Super Bowl in the NFL. No way. So, so like the amount of people that are watching is like kind of stunning. Um, as well, all you have to do if you're not familiar with what's going on is go on Twitch and watch Ninja, and uh, and the screen has like money that falls out of the sky as people tip him, and as he's like you know winning the game and like talking and interacting, literally money's just falling out of the sky. Tips like a constant stream of like ten, fifteen, twenty bucks, five bucks. It's like it's like what is going on? This is amazing. So um. So yeah, there's there's some things going on if you're not familiar with gaming that are really uh, 
interesting to look into. I'm not a big gamer either, but uh, you know, I play video games. But I, I, until I dug into what's going on with this um, professional gaming, I had no idea. And and yeah. and he already, uh, I think Ninja already makes possibly. I don't want to. It, it's something like outrageous amount of money. Like maybe even I think it's maybe, north of like twenty million a year. Yeah, yeah. So, um, and I can only imagine he's making twenty million a year if he starts selling like his non-fungible in-game items as well like he he could be you know he, he could be he's gonna be crushing it so yeah very very interesting stuff yeah um, and i think like so to, to sort of get back to what i was saying earlier like a lot of the incumbents see that that's a, a threat to them right like they can't um think about if these tips were going peer-to-peer rather than like through twitch right yeah. so twitch is obviously taking a cut of that in, in some sense um you know doing that peer-to-peer is is better for ninja better for the uh, users, um, probably worse off for Twitch. So I, I don't necessarily expect that some of the um, gaming incumbents are going to jump on this opportunity. I think there will be upstarts that see that this is a very unique opportunity and sort of cater to building experiences around this new paradigm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it'll be a basically this new new tool and developer's tool belts and some people choose to use it integrated into games and it'll surely will start slow. Um, also saw a uh, had an interesting thought about gaming DAX because I know that um, like World of Warcraft over the years had some changes like you were saying within the game that the users didn't necessarily like now if these users are really you know into this this is their world they put a lot of time into it so the ability for them to maybe vote on upcoming changes through some sort of gaming DAC could be a huge change in how gaming, you know, how they, these these ten year long games, how they make upgrades along the way, it makes sense to give some of that power to the users. So um, absolutely, uh, I think I actually just saw on Twitter recently um, that like apparently Minecraft does something along those lines where they okay. they conduct user polls. Um, I don't know much about it. I, I'd, I'd have to look more into it, you know, because the natural question is like, well, how do they prevent civil attacks? How do they know that it's actually unique users or whatever? Maybe it's by accounts. I'm not a Minecraft user, so I don't know, but um. But yeah, certainly I think that's an interesting model. Um, it also gets back to what we were talking about earlier with like centralized, fully centralized versus fully decentralized. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I think a lot of these games, the game itself will mostly exist off chain, but the sort of ownership and transfer of assets will exist on chain. Um, so, you know, you can't necessarily, but, but it could be possible that like you have a game that is fully on chain. And if that's the case, then then someone could actually just fork the, the, the game code and, and create an alternative alternative version. Um, but, you know, maybe the game will exist mostly off-chain, but the, the ownership and transfer will exist on-chain. But you could still see a competitor saying, hey, like I said earlier, you know, we're going to spin up a, a competing version um, and, and honor these tokens as well. Come over if you, if you want to play our version. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is, I mean, great stuff about, about EOS here. I'm, let's kind of transition a little bit and talk about Aurora EOS because you, you got a block producer um, you know, that's, that's been working its way up the ranks. So, um, let's talk a bit about that. What, what's your main focus as a block producer? What's your unique, unique provide that you're doing? Yeah. So our, our main focus is really around like education. Um, and I would say more, more recently governance issues with, with regards to EOS. So I, I think that, I think that EOS has a really interesting structure and delegated proof of stake and on-chain voting. They're all very interesting. They're also all super immature in a lot of ways um, because they just they haven't been tried at scale before. Um, you know, a lot of people in the in the ecosystem who are token holders aren't fully 
sort of aware of the importance of these processes and all of that. Um, but, but particularly, you know, EOS is a system of, of on-chain governance. So you've got the token holders have the ability to um, contribute to determining how this blockchain evolves and, you know, who, who is running it as, as validators and, you know, what features are, are integrated and all of that. And I think in order to um, have a, a healthy and mature system of governance, you need voters to, to be informed and you need the important voters who are, you know, the ones who have a lot of say, whether that's um, proxies or, or whales or, you know, enterprises or, or dApps or whoever, to be able to, to make um, good decisions about the, the future of the blockchain and, 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 you know, things that are, that are being, decided by on-chain governance. And so we saw, you know, uh, we saw an opportunity to contribute to those discussions and, and sort of be a block producer that, that makes our name in providing kind of detailed analysis of the ecosystem in order to um, offer, you know, uh, materials that would help people make more informed decisions. Um, and specifically recently, we've, we've been really focused on governance because I think this is kind of, kind of the key issue um, driving EOS forward. So when, when we, when we first, um, decided that we were going to do a block producer, we, we surveyed the ecosystem to see what was out there. What were the different models that block producers were trying? What were, um, you know, what was being offered and what, uh, what, where did we see a, a lack of things that we thought we could contribute? And, um, you know, there's a lot of different types of block producers. There's some that are super focused on, for example, DAP development. There's some that are really focused on building infrastructure tools like, you know, gray mass with their amazing wallet and their APIs. There's some that are focused on, um, you know, working on test nets and actually like optimizing the core code of, of EOS. Um, there's some that are focused on building developer tools. Um, and so we, we saw a lot of really talented teams out there that, that were, were doing that. And, and that wasn't really where we wanted to focus our efforts. We wanted to, to focus on the, the education side of things. So, um, that, you know, we started by, by doing, um, you know, we're, we're releasing a lot of articles that are discussing some of these really important issues. Um, we are doing a weekly roundup newsletter that, that offers sort of um, uh, curated uh, list of what's going on in EOS, as well as some, some commentary around there. We just launched the EOS Voter Podcast. That is a podcast where we, we bring on individual guests to talk about very specific issues. Um, and then, you know, a thing that we started doing more recently is um, we realized that there is a, a pretty big um, communication barrier between the Western and the Eastern communities in EOS. Um, so we've been, we've been in discussions with some of the block producers in China. We have a community rep who, who is working for us on the ground in China. Um, and we're doing a lot to sort of help um, make sure that the dialogues that are happening on Twitter and Telegram here, here in the West are, um, you know, making their way to, to WeChat and, and Bihu and, and some of those channels um, there in the East and vice versa. Because um, I think that's, that's really important. The, the Chinese community in EOS is, is absolutely massive. Um, they're contributing a lot of, of important um, ideas and, and we, we want to make sure those don't get lost in the mix. Yeah, and <clears throat> the Chinese community is, is like such an enigma because you forget how massive they are and how much must be going on in China. But it's like as English speakers, we kind of are centric to, to our own language. And so I, yeah. mean, I, I just imagine all the stuff going on here. Imagine there. Yeah. There's the language barrier. And then there's also the, like um, the, the channel barrier. Like, uh, so to, I would say 
and I'm sure you would agree with this, that like the, the epicenter of discourse around EOS here in the, the West is, is Telegram followed pretty closely by Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, neither of those are tools that are, that are commonly used um, in China. Yeah. Um, whereas like WeChat um, is, is sort of the, the Telegram uh, equivalent. And then um, there's a website called Bihu or Baihu that's sort of a, a steam kind of Twitter type of thing that is very popular within the EOS community. And then there's also, you've got like Weibo and things like that. Um, but those are just, uh, those are kind of siloed um, channels. So it's not just the, the language barrier. It's the fact that those things are taking place in, in different channels and it can be hard to, to um, you know, penetrate those communities and, and get a sense of, of what's going on there. So um, I think one of the most valuable skill sets in EOS right now are the people who, um, who either speak both, you know, English and Chinese or Korean and Chinese. Um, if you're, uh, you know, a super badass, you're probably speaking Korean, uh, Chinese and English. And then you're like, you know, EOS hero. But I think we need more people who can, um, who can, you know, bridge that gap and be those um, community representatives sort of across both, both worlds. So, um, you know, I've, I've built relationships with, with some people in the community who, who do do that. And like I said, we've got a, we've got a guy who's now working with us at Aurora um, doing that. And um, that's been really helpful. And it's really opened up my, my uh, mind to a lot of the um, interesting things happening over there, the, the ideas around how EOS should work and, and all sorts of things. Wow. Yeah. Well, we need to get on Duolingo, dude, and start just hitting it super hard for the next year or two. Just grinding it out, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, anyway, uh, yeah, so what's, what's some things that are going on over there maybe that we wouldn't expect? Like what, what's kind of the feel in China for the direction of EOS? And, and You know, this has been sort of like a more recent project, mm-hmm. um, uh, of ours, you know, originally we were getting a lot of our, um, we were getting our content translated into Chinese, sort of put out, put out on the, the right channels, um, and the, the Chinese channels and all of that. But it's really been more recently that, that we've been making a really concerted effort to to try and connect with those community members and, and understand that and things like that. Um, so I don't necessarily want to want to speak to specific issues quite yet, but like one of the things we're exploring is, um, like the debate around ECAF, for example, you know, at Aurora, we've made our position super clear that we think ECAF is, is a bad idea. Um, we think that it's, uh, you know, it's a, it's an attack vector for EOS. I think it prevents it from scaling socially. Um, you know, we've written about it. If anyone wants to, to go read our stuff, it's, uh, we, we feel pretty strongly about that. Um, now, Within the community out here, we got a lot of, um, I think, positive feedback on that from from other block producers and other community members, for the most part, who, who tended to agree. Now, when uh, we put that out to the, the Chinese community, we got some kickback on, you know, uh, for, for reasons or objections that weren't necessarily raised here. Um, not to say that, that people didn't agree, but people had, you know, maybe slightly different views on that. So that was really um, important for us to explore because we might have, you know, sort of put our finger to the wind here, here in the West and gotten a certain sense of, of how the community feels um, and, and not gotten the, the, um, the sort of full input from, from the community uh, globally. And, um, you know, in terms of like sheer numbers, I think the number of, of EOS users and, and token holders and all that is, is, is much bigger in China than it is um, in the United States and, and Europe. So it's really important to, to be connected to that world. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, that's a that's a. Um, I look forward to hearing how that develops. I'd love to yeah. love to touch base with you and kind of keep my finger on the pulse there as well. That's that's pretty cool. Um, so you've got the uh, education for the community and through writing medium articles, the podcast, the weekly release, um, focused on kind of the governance issues and things like that right now in, in China um, with the translations. What else? What else is going on with you guys? You know, I think right now we're we're really making our, our focus um, governance because I think this is the the issue that's going to define EOS. Um, you know, for for the foreseeable future, um, we're we are also taking a close look at sort of the the side chain and, and sister chains ecosystem because I think it's becoming more clear that horizontal scaling through a number of different chains is going to be a big part of. Um, of the future of EOS, and we've talked to a number of DAP developers who are uh, thinking specifically about about building as either a side chain or a sister chain. Um, we've got a, a couple things off our sleeve that I don't want that I can't quite uh, come public with yet. But um, but yeah, I mean, right now our, our focus is, is absolutely on governance um, because I, I think that's the most important thing. Um, the other thing is that you know it's it's uh, we're kind of we're focused on, on making sure that our business model is a sustainable one and one that has staying power because, uh, you know, right now we're in the middle of a pretty um, prolonged bear market that very well could continue for the foreseeable future. And if you're, you know, running a business where your revenue depends on the price of a token in one of the most highly volatile markets on earth is not the easiest way to run a business, um, as I'm sure many other block producers would tell you. So we're really focused on, on making sure that, that we have the ability to, um, to continue to offer, you know, services to the EOS community, continue to, to bring value, um, even as the, um, the market conditions aren't necessarily in our favor. Yeah, it's definitely a, um, a, an interest, excuse me, an interesting shakeout that we're having here as far as the price dropping. And I know that's putting some pressure on a lot of the BPs, um, which may actually end up, you know, there's this idea that it may end up being a, a good thing to make the chain more resilient, make BPs more resilient. Um, yeah, what, what do you think on that as far as the price dropping and BPs having to deal with it? Yeah, so I think in the in the long run, the, the price drop could ultimately be a good thing for EOS for, for a number of reasons. Um, I think the, the, the main one is that, you know, EOS launched in June uh, of this year. Um, if it had just been two years of, of straight bull market um, followed by some major crash, I think that the chain could have had a lot of issues um, dealing with that. Whereas having a bear market early on gives us um, a lot more uh, information to prepare for the future. So, uh, you know, six or seven months ago, the business model of being an EOS block producer did not exist. And everyone who's doing it now is sort of a first timer and there's no blueprint for, for how to build a successful business doing EOS block production. And so what the bear market does is it sort of gives us a lot more data points and information on which models for a block producer have the most staying power and which ones are able to, um, you know, not only keep their, their lights on, but also keep adding value even in unfavorable market conditions. Um, you know, you've got a lot of different block producers, as I mentioned before, that have different models and different ways of, of serving the community and, you know, potentially different, um, different revenue models or 
you know, multiple sources of income or whatever it may be. And having a brutal bear market early on really is going to, is going to help us find out which ones of those have staying power, um, you know, which teams ha have, have planned accordingly and, and, and are able to, um, to continue to serve the community. And I think that's going to be, that, that's really important because we kind of get that out of the way early on and it allows us to learn so that we're prepared for in the future if we have another run up and then a crash and, and all that, which, you know, these markets are, are going to take, the crypto markets are going to take years and years and years to mature. So that's, that's very possible. The other thing, the reason that I think this bear market could, could potentially be good and uh, in the long run for EOS is that um, like the EOS token sale happened over the course of, uh, like mid 2017 to mid 2018, which was the craziest period of speculative mania that we've ever seen in these markets. And so you had a lot of people who were, who were buying into EOS simply for speculation purposes. Um, and as a result, those people were, you know, most likely keeping their tokens on exchanges, not participating in voting. They were really only interested in the price action. Um, and I think what the bear market does is it shakes out a lot of those people who are simply in it for speculation and the people who are buying EOS right now, um, you know, I can't confirm for sure, but my, my instinct is that those people have a more long-term outlook, um, have a better sense of, of what it is that, that, um, the, what the model is that EOS runs on being, being DPoS and will be more sort of active, um, voters in the future. Um, rather than, than just simply speculators or, you know, the people who are accumulating right now are maybe the people who, who are planning on building on EOS. So they have a long-term commitment there. And I think having, um, having voters who, who really have a long-term interest in EOS is how governance can, can come to, to function successfully. Um, so like right now you've got a lot of speculators who are keeping their tokens on exchanges. Maybe those exchanges are, are using those tokens to vote on behalf of, of holders or whatever it may be. I think, in the future, if things go well, um, and this is sort of yet to be determined, but I think we'll have a lot of businesses that are built on EOS that participate in um, governance because that's what's good for their business. You know, we, we mentioned how like the, the betting applications kind of prove the first, um, the, they, they were the first proof that you could build a fully on-chain business that is profitable and successful. So if you, if you own or participate in one of those businesses, you're very incentivized to make sure that EOS has block producers who are honest, who are contributing to infrastructure, who are improving the network, um, rather than just sort of like rent-seeking puppet um, block producers. Um, because your, your, the future of your business depends on the health and security of EOS as a platform. And so, you know, we when in EOS's early days, there was a lot of speculators and very little that was actually built on top of it. As those ratios sort of invert, um, then I think governance gets a lot healthier. And I think the bear market can can contribute to that sort of redistribution of um, tokens from from speculators towards um, you know builders and and people with a long term outlook in a positive way. Yeah. My, my favorite point in there is the one about uh, the timing of the bear market. I think it's so such a, it is actually fortuitous timing. If you look at it from, if we were in some big run up uh, and, and the block producers built too big or everyone kind of built infrastructure, these complex systems too big. Uh, too fast without kind of any checks or balances makes it very fragile. So if we would have had a run up and then a fall, I mean, it could have been a much more, um, it could have hurt the chain a lot more. Whereas this fall early, 
makes it more resilient, makes it more, yeah. um, you know. And I think it makes block producers realize that they need to plan for this kind of thing. Um, you know, even if the token price goes up temporarily and your margins are a little bit higher, you shouldn't necessarily go out there and hire five additional engineers because <clears throat> next week that, that, that uh, additional <coughs> could be, or the, 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 those margins could be compressed significantly. So, um, like I said, it's not an easy business to be in. Um, it's, it's very new and there's a lot of factors <laughs> to consider, but every time we have challenges like this, it gives us additional data points to, to learn from and integrate into our businesses. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and we saw a, a kind of sad example with Steam and Inc. Um, yep. getting just wrecked because of uh, basically the same situation. They were running their business and, and paying their people off the hopes of token price staying, maintaining or increasing. Um, so yeah, it is, it's good to, it's good to get this over with or not, it's not over with, but uh, you know, it's good to shake the tree a little bit, I think. So absolutely, yeah. Um, so, kind of the last uh, topic as far as uh, Aurora EOS, and then we'll start winding down here. Um, but uh, governance—that's your focus. So, just just tell a little bit about governance. What your angles are? What, what you think the future looks like for EOS governance? Or yeah. So, so I think a lot of it is what I just talked about with regards to you know I think the like in a in a DPoS system. So the the Delegated proof of stake has been tried before a number of times in a number of different permutations with different projects. It has never been tried at the scale that it's currently being tried with, with EOS right now. So to, to some extent, it is still a very experimental. Now, my hypothesis has been that you can develop a very healthy ecosystem of, of governance if you have some of the things that I was describing before, which are either you know businesses that are built on top of EOS with a long-term long vested interest in the project, or um, you know, another thing that I think will be helpful is something like the resource exchange. So if you're a large EOS token holder, you know, maybe you're not running a DAP, but you're re leasing out your tokens to, to some of those successful DAPs that are built on EOS and you're getting a, a return for that. Um, you have, um, you know, one, you have an interest in preserving that, that um, recurring income stream from, from renting out your resources, but also in order to rent out those resources, you have to lock up your tokens for a prolonged period of time. And you are thus incentivized during that time that your tokens are locked up to vote for honest block producers because, you know, if the, if the, the chain gets attacked while your tokens are, are locked up, you, you lose a lot of value. So it's sort of, um, it, it, the, those incentives are, are at play here um, in, in getting um, people to, to more actively participate in getting, getting governance to, to be healthier. Um, I think the, the things that we have to contend with in the short term are certainly ECAP. Um, I think that EOS does, should not have any sort of pre-specified arbitrator. Um, I think arbitration is, is cool and interesting if you have it on a um, sort of on an application layer or a peer-to-peer -peer layer. If you, you know, if you and I want to enter into agreement and, and specify an arbitrator, then there's nothing stopping us from doing that. But the idea that, that we should, um, you know, have to have all of our activities um, at the end of the day governed by, by ECAP by default is, is insane. Um, and that, that really should, uh, I think should be removed from, from the, um, from the constitution and, and thus from the chain. So that's something we're really working hard to, um, to move forward is like a, a referendum vote that would 
um, adopt a new version of the Constitution and, and also remove uh, mandatory arbit arbitration from the Constitution. Um, I think that, you know, side chains, application, there's all sorts of ways that arbitration um, could work and users could have awesome protections, but I think that you need a, a base layer chain that's, that's objective and not subjective. Um, so, so that's one really important thing. And then that gets into another governance issue, which is just the Constitution. Um, and so the Constitution plays into the, the issues of, of referendum and the issues of arbitration. So, um, you know, w w with EOS, what you, what you have is you have the ability to hold an on-chain vote. That's a, it's not a democracy. It's, a, it, it's like a liquid democracy in the sense that you can either vote directly or proxy your vote to someone else. But it's not a democracy because it's not one person, one vote. It's one token, one vote. So it's, it's a plutocracy, really. Um, it's proof of stake. That's how it's supposed to work. Um, right now, what you have is users vote for block producers, and that programmatically determines the ranking of the block producers. So that's what's sort of like um, that voting is, is, is executed by, by the software. Now, in the future, we'll have what's, what's called a referendum, which means we can hold an on-chain vote of, of token holders um, but it's more of a, it's more of a poll to gauge token holder sentiment. So, um, if anyone remembers like the DAO hack, they did this like thing called the carbon vote on Ethereum where they had EOS or ETH token holders say yes or no to, to hard fork for the DAO. Um, now we can do something like that where we can hold a referendum that says, um, you know, for example, should we adopt a new version of the constitution or should we adopt this new version of the constitution and token holders can vote yes or no. The important difference between this type of voting and the voting for block producers is that the voting for block producers is, is automatically executed by the core software. The voting for referendum is simply a signal um, and, and it's more of a social consensus. So we have to kind of determine, say, okay, if we hold a token holder referendum and X percent of token holders vote yes on adopting a new constitution, you know, what is the percentage at which we say this should be adopted by the network? Um, and what referendum really is, is it's a, it's a way for the existing block producers to gauge the sentiment of the community and then implement the changes that they want. Because at the end of the day, if you get 65% of token holders that say that vote, yes, we should adopt this new constitution, um, nothing actually happens in that case unless the block producers implement it, right? It doesn't, it doesn't get executed automatically. Um, and so I think it's a really useful tool for, for block producers, but I think people also need to recognize the limitations of, of a referendum um, and that it really is sort of a, like a, a social signal. And so the idea behind the constitution is that we can kind of um, define in a wet code, human readable way, what those expectations are. So we could say in the constitution, you know, if a vote gets, um, you know, 20% or more, yes, sustained for 30 days, then the block producers should, should implement it. And that to me is sort of the useful thing about a constitution, right? It provides us with like a shelling point and um, like uh, a signal that, or like a, something that we can all turn to and say like, this is, this is, the, um, this is the parameters that, that, that we agreed to. Um, and so that's kind of the usefulness of a, of a constitution. But I think beyond that, the more complicated that you make the constitution, the more unenforceable it becomes, the more um, complicated interactions become, the more you have um, disagreements about, 
you know, interpretations of the Constitution and, and stuff like that. So I think that the Constitution should be a very, very simple document that sort of outlines expectations of block producers and parameters for, for referendum governance. Um, I don't think you need a whole lot more in that, in that document because at the end of the day, the only thing that's really enforceable is token holders voting for, for block producers. Um, so, you know, that, that's sort of a, a quick summary of my thoughts around governance, but we're going to be, we're, we're going to be releasing some, some articles that really dive into these issues in, in a more detailed way. Great. Well, I'll, I'll look into those, wait for them, read them. Um, but, uh, yeah, the, the constitution is such an interesting, I mean, you can look at the U S constitution, for example, it, it, they started as this kind of, um, this base constitution. The thing with a, a set of rules like that that starts out with a, this initial intent, um, it ends up kind of being used as a way to slowly interpret to gain more centralized power. Yep. Whereas like it's never interpreted to take power away uh, from kind of a central entity. It's always interpreted to give a little bit more power. And over time uh, it turns into this perverse uh, thing that's not really even representative of itself anymore, but it can't really go backwards. It almost uh, gives license for this small, progressive, one-way one street towards uh, centralization. That's my yep. that's my kind of take on it. So uh, I, I like, agree more. Yeah. So like you're saying, man, uh, keep it keep it precise. Yeah. There's a narrative that's emerged recently that um, I think <clears throat> some of the proponents of of ECAF have put forward that says like. ECAF is um, a way to provide checks and balances in the system because we can interpret the constitution and therefore, um, you know, make sure that it's being properly enforced and that block producers are complying by the constitution. I think that is, it's, it's super, super short-sighted and um, it's, a, it's a bad idea because what it really is, is like you said, it's sort of a move towards centralization and consolidating power in this party that is ECAF that supposedly you know, is, is providing oversight, but really has no, like ECAF needs, needs checks and balances on itself. Um, and they're, they're claiming to provide that for block producers. And it's also, it's not effective. Um, because like I said, at the end of the day, the only thing that's actually enforceable is block is, is voters voting for block producers. And so that's really what should, should be at the core of governance and referendum should be a, should be a tool that, um, signals to block producers what the community wants. Um, I think, ECAF is, is simply, um, I, I mean, I, I think ECAF should be either gone or should, uh, if they want to continue operating, they should do so as like a, as an application or a serve as a third party service on top of the blockchain. But, um, I don't think ECAF fits into the core governance model, uh, of ES at all. Yeah. And I, and I like the, the third party app approach, um, because anyone who's listening to this podcast I, knows that I'm big on kind of natural systems and, and robust and anti-fragile like ways of approaching and this, um, having multiple different ways to arbitrate and letting people choose. And some, some are better for systems than others. Some will break and disappear and some will work and, uh, you know, be used more often. I mean, that, that's the way to do it. It, it, Absolutely. The, um, I mean, think about it today. If you're a business, you may, uh, you may set up your, you, you may, you may register your business in a different jurisdiction, depending on, on what you're doing or tax implications or things like that. In, I think in, in the same way, you'll have people choosing to do business with different arbitrators based on any number of factors. Um, so Tokenica 
is an awesome block producer from Poland that's doing some really cool work on this with actual um, automated arbitration through smart contracts that is completely opt-in and completely automated, which means that block producers don't have to get involved, which is a huge part of the scalability aspect of how arbitration is currently structured. You can't have it be that block producers need to constantly update lists and things like that. Um, so, uh, you know, shameless plug for our EOS voter podcast. I'm having um, Marcin from Tokenica on uh, later today that we'll be recording to specifically discuss this topic of arbitration, um, why the current system is broken and what can be done to fix it. And they're, they're doing a lot of work on, on that front because, you know, it's, it's silly to just criticize this and say like, hey, let's get rid of it with, you know, without offering some solutions. But the, the good news is that there's a lot of teams, Titan, EOS Titan being another one that are working on really, really smart, innovative solutions to this that, um, that, don't, uh, that don't break the security model of the network. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, I, I got to check out your podcast. I haven't heard it before, but uh, I we just I, released the first episode last week. We did it with, um, with Alex from EOS Canada to talk about um, scaling. Great. So the idea behind our podcast is that we want to dive into very specific issues. Um, so for so each podcast, we'll focus on a different issue. So the first one we talked about scaling with, with Alex from EOS Canada, and we, we dove into all the different, um, you know, future improvements and, and ways that EOS can scale to support, thousands of dApps and, and millions of users in the future. Um, for the next one, we're going to talk to, to Marcin. We're going to talk about arbitration. And it's going to be an entire podcast about arbitration. So if you're a, a listener who's, who's interested in that particular issue, then there's going to be a podcast for you. And we've, we've got a few other really cool guests lined up. So um, I'm excited for it. Cool, man. I, I love, uh, that's how I can, that's how I do most of my learning is uh, through podcasts, audio like books. Books. Yeah. And then the, the reason I actually do this podcast is it started out, I just wanted to, I, you know, I was just trying to learn more and more about it. Um, yeah. Yeah, it is, it is self-serving and stuff. I get to have conversations with like really smart people who yeah. you know a lot more than I do about certain issues. Yeah, it's, it's fantastic, man. It's a great, yeah, it is self-serving. Exactly. <laughs> I love it. Um, well, as we wind up here, uh, I want to ask a little bit about you because I, I dug in, did some research as I tend to do and uh, saw that you were maybe a chef in Mexico. You started a music company. Uh, you worked production for like a, uh, for a, a movie studio or a creative studio, like uh Tell me about Mexico. That's that's kind of the one I was most interested in. Yeah. So so I um, so I studied economics in college. That's when I first found out about like Bitcoin and and later um, BitShares and and some of these other early projects. You know, like uh, watched Ethereum go live. Um, was super interested in the space. But this was um, I graduated college in mid 2015, which was you know in the in the middle of a, a really brutal. Um, crypto bear market. There wasn't a ton of opportunities um, to, to work in the industry. And I come from a, um, a family of, of cooks. Food is, is really, really important in our family. And it's, um, believe it or not, I have interest outside of crypto that sometimes I get to spend a little bit of time on. But cooking is, is definitely, uh, you know, one of my, my biggest passions. Um, so I always had the, the desire to, to go to cooking school or, you know, maybe spend some time working in a restaurant. And um, particularly, I was interested in, in going abroad to learn because I also love to travel. Um, so after I graduated, I packed up and moved to Mexico City, where I went to cooking school for, for six months um, at a cool little program out there. And then I moved to Tulum, Mexico, where I worked in a, a restaurant. Um, it's like an open, you know, wood-fired, um, open-air restaurant, sort of in the, in the jungle near the beach in this really amazing part of Mexico, using all, you know, local ingredients and, um, you know, really, really like old-school 
uh, wood-fired grill and oven cooking techniques, um, and it, it was awesome. It was a super cool learning experience, and um, you know, it, I, I kind of entered that with the idea that I, I would do it to to learn because I, I wanted to get better at cooking, and um, that that's exactly what it was. So so it was super fun. Um, I had a great time. I learned a lot. I managed to to keep up with the with the crypto world um, a little bit because there was still a lot of really cool stuff happening at that time, even though the the bear market was still still going on. Um, and then eventually um, decided to move back and, and dive into crypto full time. And that's when I joined uh, Multicoin Capital, which was the, the crypto hedge fund that I was working for prior to starting Aurora. Nice, man. Well, that makes me want to go to May. It's a bear market right now. I might just head down to Mexico. and I know, right? Yeah. How to cook in the jungle. That sounds nice, man. <laughs> yeah. Calling my name again. That's fantastic. Um, well, cool. And, uh, and, as we wrap up here, I need to uh, just want to explain my black eye, which also has a, a, a correlation with you. Um, I do uh, jujitsu, and so that's why I have a black eye for anyone watching this wondering what I've been up to. Um, Did you accidentally get uh, get like hit hit with an elbow or a heel yeah, or something? Yeah, it was an elbow or maybe like a forearm just across the face or something. Um, yeah. But I mentioned that to Miles to explain, you know, why I look like a goofball today and, and you also do um jujitsu which is rad so um yeah I started doing it actually when I was living in Mexico oh really cool uh, continued, yeah doing it here but um jujitsu is is awesome it's uh anyone anyone who's looking for a, a new hobby that's super addictive really fun great for you physically and you'll meet some some really cool people and learn some cool stuff I couldn't recommend jujitsu more yeah. Beautiful. Uh, it's almost like a, it's almost like a med, like a really intense meditation or something like nothing else yeah. is going on in the world at that point. It's this kind of, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a, it's pure flow state. Um, and very, uh, you know, it's, it's actually funny. Like I know a lot of guys who are sort of like, um, like in, really into like computers and, and stuff who, who are really into jujitsu because it's very, um, it's very tactical. Um, mm. and, uh, you know, they call it human chess for a reason, but it's very, it's very cerebral as well. Um, and I think uh, a lot of people are attracted to that. So, uh, so yeah, we'll get, we should get more of the EOS community into, uh, into jujitsu. We can start, uh, sponsoring, we can put, you know, Aurora EOS on the back of some geese and put them into competitions. <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. That's great. Hey man, well, this was, this has been a blast. This is why I love doing the podcast. I love talking to, uh, interesting people, people smarter than me, people that have all, you know, all these angles that I'm, I'm here to learn. And so, um, thanks for, thanks for talking with me, man. It's been a blast. Oh, I had a great time too. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And where can people find you on the socials? What's, what's um, the best uh, place? It's, uh, Twitter is at miles Snyder or sorry, at miles underscore Snyder miles with a Y Snyder with an I, um, at Aurora EOS BP, um, on Twitter. And then Aurora EOS.com is our website and you can find links to all our socials in there. Um, you know, ping us on telegram, ping us on Twitter, reach out to say hi. If you, uh, if you want to talk about the, the governance issues, um, if you want to, you know, learn about some of the other stuff that, that we've written about, um, you know, we're on Medium, Steam, Behu, WeChat, Telegram, Twitter, you name it, hey. and we got a podcast too. So yeah, read your Medium article. Come talk about governance in Telegram and listen to the podcast. I'll put yes. those in the show notes for uh, my EOS podcast friends. Um, and much love to everyone. Pleasure being here. Thanks for coming on, Miles. Thank you. Cheers. The money is not the prime asset in life. Time is, and uh, your time is just a crap.